The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the AHLA Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel. Today, we're talking about electronic health records and recent developments in the government's approach to EHR. In recent years, we've seen a substantial uptick in healthcare fraud matters involving EHR. And as providers, healthcare companies, life sciences companies, and others work to create more interoperable record-keeping systems, and frankly, as patients continue to expect near real-time access to medical histories, the government continues to incentivize the adoption of meaningful EHR. And with that incentivization, we can only expect to see more interest from the government. Today, I'm joined by Chris Sabus, who heads the Government Compliance and Investigations Group at Sherrard Rowe, Voigt and Harbison, based in Nashville, Tennessee. Chris concentrates his practice in the areas of government investigations and litigation and has extensive experience in False Claims Act matters involving allegations of healthcare and procurement fraud. Prior to joining the firm, Chris served nearly a decade as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Tennessee, and I also happen to have had the distinct pleasure of working with Chris in our law school days when we both served on the masthead of the Georgetown Journal of Legal Ethics, I won't say how many years ago. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, uh, break it down for us here. How do how should we think about EHR related fraud and how it affects patients? Okay. Well, when I think about EHR related fraud, uh, I think about first of all, obviously, electronic health record systems uh, that are used by practitioners uh, to track the medical records of their patients. I also think of technologies that are what I call EHR adjacent. So if you have a software program that interacts with your EHR and helps you with things like revenue optimization, um, you know, I, I think that's included kind of in the EHR fraud realm. Um, as far as how EHRs uh, affect patients, it's a fascinating question because, you know, we're still learning that. Uh, you know, the federal government over the last 10, 15 years has invested over $35 billion in the adoption of EHRs and EHR uh, systems. And so it's a huge investment and, and CMS has an entire webpage dedicated to why it's done that and listing a ton of reasons. Um, you know, the, the most, I guess, obvious are patient safety, um, you know, communication between different physicians and practice groups, uh, coordination of care, uh, and uh, avoiding errors, you know, for example, in medication, being able to determine quickly through an electronic system, whether you might be prescribing something that might cause a reaction or be problematic, given something else the patient already is taking or some patient condition. And so that's how EHRs really affect patients, at least in theory. Um, the, the issue for, for, you know, healthcare providers and for EHR developers is that Fraud investigations tend to follow the money, and when you know the government has invested over thirty-five billion in in the adoption of these systems, uh, eventually they're going to be looking for for anything they seem that they think is problematic. Follow the money. That's what I always tell my clients when it comes to this kind of uh, this kind of area, this kind of potential increased enforcement. Thirty-five billion dollars, though a thirty-five billion dollar investment. What does that look like? Where, where are we seeing that money going? Is it in the form of grants? Is it in the form of um, subsidies? What, what does that look like? 
A lot of that money has come from uh, what are known as meaningful use incentive payments. Uh, about, like I said, about 10, 15 years ago, uh, the, the government made a decision that it really wanted to, to push the adoption of EHR systems. One of the obstacles for that is that they're expensive. Uh, and you have a lot of practitioners who did not want to uh, invest the money to adopt those systems, either just because they're expensive or also because they did not like technology. They're used to working with paper. They have their patient files. They want to keep it. And so the government uh, adopted a, a safe harbor exception to the anti-kickback statute, or excuse me, a safe harbor for the anti-kickback statute and an exception for the Stark Law to allow uh, different healthcare entities to uh, make contributions uh, toward a practice's purchase of EHR technology. And, you know, if the, if, if the practice adopted uh, EHR technology and could show that they were meaningfully using that technology in their practices, they could submit to the government for incentive payments for adoption and use. And that's where a lot of that investment went in. And so when, when we talk about meaningful use, so, you know, when I hear EHR, uh, my mind kind of immediately goes to um, the safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute, thinking about, you know, the recent changes to eliminate the sunset provision. Um, but talk to us a little bit about meaningful use. What does that mean? I think that's going to come into play when we talk a little bit about some of the government's theories for fraud here. Yeah. And meaningful use basically means that, you know, <laughs> The government doesn't just want you to have an EHR system. The government wants to know that you are um, using that system in your practice to the betterment of your patients. And there, for that reason, the government adopted certain requirements uh, for what functions the EHR has to be able to perform. For example, you know, and, and uh, this goes deeper than, than, you know, my expertise in the IT piece of it, but, but the systems need to be able to, you know, properly track um, you know, uh, lab tests and results and report them on each patient need to properly keep track of time um, uh, and the length of uh, certain uh, uh, certain um, uh, appointments uh, in order to provide for proper E&M code usage, uh, for example, and, and correct E&M modifiers. Uh, it needs to be able to um, keep track of um, you know, lab results, test results, uh, as I mentioned before, and you need to be able to track prescription information, I think, like we, like we discussed early on, uh, so that patients uh, are safe and it improves patient safety and allows for uh, a quick check and quick communication of uh, prescriptions that are the patient is presently on. Those are just some examples of kind of the, the functions that are at issue with these systems and why the government wanted them adopted. And presumably, especially when we talk about, you know, sort of the, you know, coding and billing, the diagnosis codes, you know, making sure the accuracy of records that can only serve to, or, you know, hopefully serve to improve it efficiency within the you know, coverage and reimbursement system. Yeah, and and with and with that accuracy and with that 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 approach, you know, with with coding um, came obviously requirements for audit trails. Um, you know, one thought is that if we can have an electronic system where you have an audit trail that can be created and followed, uh, it's going to help to um, detect and to dissuade fraudulent activity. And so that's another function of these systems that the government coveted was. Uh, a way to go back and be sure you had an accurate audit trail. And of course, if if the audit trail is not accurate, um, that creates a, a whole other problem in this space. 
So um, I want to dig a little bit into some of the recent cases here, into some of the government's theories. I read an article that you wrote uh, uh, relatively recently, and you cite sort of three main theories. I'd love to hear if that's changed over time, but why don't you talk to us about, you know, some of the theories that the government's used to pursue fraud in the EHR space and, you know, what does that look like and, and, and how have companies reacted? Yeah, it's the three has kind of become four in my mind and just the way that I conceive it. And, and you know, I actually spoke to, to at the AHLA Fraud and Compliance Forum about this in 2020 when we were all, you know, sitting in our offices, uh, uh, you know, watching uh, watching our, our continuing legal education and hopefully not doing other things at the same time. Uh, but um, it, 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 there's basically four areas that I think that the government has really worked in here. The first and, and kind of the primary starting point of this was EHR donation fraud. Um, and in, in full disclosure, I was an AUSA in the Middle District of Tennessee uh, when, when the two, you know, kind of primary EHR donation fraud cases uh, hit and they were my cases. Um, so just speaking generally and, and, and only with public knowledge on these, this is a situation where that safe harbor and that exception that I referenced earlier were allegedly abused where someone is, where a company is making a donation. And in the instances of my cases, it was urine, they were urinalysis testing companies um, where, where a donation is being made to a practice uh, and, and it's not complying with those, with the, the safe harbor and the exception. Um, after those cases, and, and again, you know, the timelines are not exact, but roughly speaking, after those cases, you had um, meaningful use certification fraud as the second category I think of. And that's cases basically where the system itself, the EHR system that is being employed does not meet the certification requirements um, to be used for by a practice to get, you know, EHR adoption and meaningful use credit. And so the government's theory is that if you have a system that does not meet the certification requirements, any claims for meaningful use incentive payments are then rendered false. And so the District of Vermont has been very active in that space. Um, you know, uh, they have done a significant amount of work uh, with multiple settlements in that area over the last few years. Um, the, the kind of third category uh, is, is kickbacks, EHR, you know, adoption kickbacks. Um, District of Massachusetts had a recent settlement on this um, uh, with Athena Health. Um, District of Vermont, again, some of their, their meaningful use certification fraud settlements also reference a kickback issue. And that's basically where a, a company, a, an EHR developer is paying a kickback to a referral source for another uh, client. So for example, to physicians who've adopted their system. Um, in the Athena Health case, I think there was a program where they provided uh, um, uh, uh, payment to former competitors uh, who left the HR space to, to try to uh, secure their, their clients. And so it, it's more of a standard form kickback. And again, the theory being that it's related to a federal health care payment because these meaningful use and adoption payments um, were being uh, made for the, for the physician that, that adopted the EHR. Um, the, the fourth category, which is, is kind of what, what I spoke about in 2020 and, and what, you know, the most recent intervention in this area um, seems to, to relate to, at least in, in part, is what I refer to as substantive EHR fraud. And that's a situation where it's not just about the adoption of the system or the meaningful use of the system. Um, or it's where there's a functionality, if I can use consultant speak for a moment, my wife would be proud, uh, <laughs> in the system itself 
that is either allegedly causing a fraud uh, or a false claim or, or is exacerbating um, or, or contributing to uh, a fraud or a false claim that is that is substantively um, uh, uh, a problem. Like, for example, an upcoding uh, would be an example. Um, you know, the practice fusion case got, you know, did something like this where you had, you know, the allegations of an opioid um, uh, manufacturer um, getting access to the system and being able to draft, you know, physician alerts. Um, it's something in the actual functionality of the system that that is allegedly contributing to the false claims. So where do you see most of the government's effort to date? And, you know, when, when we talk about these four theories, the donation fraud, meaningful use certification, sort of, you know, traditional kickbacks for adoption, and then, um, you know, the substantive EHR fraud, where, where are we seeing most uh, government focus, most of the government focus here? So far, most of the focus has been in those those first three categories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's trending toward the fourth. Um, you know, the EHR donation um, fraud piece, as you mentioned briefly, you know, when we were talking before, um, that the the provisions there of sunset, um, at least for certain providers, I know that that you know, it, it, in 2013 they sunset for urine testing companies, urine drug testing companies, um, which was before you know the the claims came in for for the cases I worked on. Um, and then meaningful use certification fraud, you know, the, like I said, the District of Vermont has done a number of those, and um, they they had recently filed an intervention uh, in a case against modernizing medicine that includes those types of claims. Um, at least on the on the relators complaint, it does. We're still waiting on the government's complaint on that, which I think is going to be fascinating to read. Um, EHR kickbacks have been the hottest area, I think, lately. You had Athena Health. They were uh, there were allegations in the in the other Vermont cases, eClinical Works and Greenway, about kickbacks along the same lines. Um, you know, kickbacks are, are always there. Um, as as the you know as the meaningful use payment system and the claims that are associated with it wind down, it seems to me like kickbacks, and then more again the substantive fraud, alleged fraud, where you've got questions about the actual function of the EHR, it seems to me that that over the next few years is where that's going to trend, which is why I found the modernizing medicine relators complaint so interesting, because it again kind of follows this pattern. It, it talks about meaningful use certification fraud. It makes allegations about kickbacks. And then it goes, oh, wait a minute. And also there are problems in the system that they're alleging or causing false claims to be submitted on the actual claim itself, as opposed to indirectly through the meaningful use system. Chris, I can't help but um, analogize to some more traditional False Claims Act matters. And in fact, you know, when, I'm, when you meaningful use certification, I think it's almost like um, you know, uh, a quality issue or, uh, you know, uh, mislabeling of a product. Um, when you mentioned the substantive EHR fraud, I almost think it's almost like an off-label claim um, in that sense. I mean, do you think that at some point um, EHR fraud-related False Claims Act cases will sort of become the norm, just like we see with uh, you know off-label, you know, AKS issues in the life sciences industry, for example? It's funny that you mentioned quality because in reading the now unsealed modernizing medicine complaint out of the uh, from the relator in the district of vermont that is that is one of the allegations that there were system flaws in the ehr 
that cause clients to submit inaccurate reports under the physician quality reporting system. And so, yes, is the answer to your question. I think I think that this is going to to expand beyond meaningful use. It's going to go into things like the the PQRS, uh, and I think that it's a really interesting um, area for the government and for uh, you know, defense counsel and in-house counsel in that depending on the circumstances of the alleged fraud, it creates a situation where you have multiple targets. Yeah. Um, there was a case in the Southern District of New York, or excuse me, not the Southern District of New York, the Southern District of Florida uh, recently where these types of MU certification fraud claims were dismissed. And in that case, you had um, you know, uh, a, a community health systems was a named defendant. And you also had, of course, the EHR company Medhost. And so it, it creates more complicated dynamics for defense and in-house counsel dealing with these claims. And it creates, you know, from a government perspective, uh, additional opportunities for discovery uh, and for areas of inquiry to try to show things like, you know, CN intent. Um, you know, one of the you know, going back to the modernizing medicine complaint from the relator, um, you know, one of the, the allegations in there is that uh, the EHR developer specifically marketed uh, increased revenues and revenue optimization uh, as a feature of its system. And while there's certainly nothing wrong with revenue optimization, uh, a, from a relator point of view or a government point of view, those types of promotions and marketing could be fruitful ground, or at least they would argue for discovery uh, to try to find evidence of intent. You know, Chris, I keep thinking also while you're talking, what's the motivation behind the bad actors here? Or I should say the alleged bad actors here. I mean, you know, from the EHR development uh, developers, uh, you know, obviously the goal is to get their product in the hands of as many folks as possible. You know, what's your take on that? What are, what are the motivations here? Well, I mean, you know, having not been in AUSA for a couple of years, I can tell you that everyone's motivations are entirely pure. Uh, but but in the in the theoretical approach of of, you know, what, what is the conception of of the, the motivations? I mean, you nailed it as far as the EHR developers. It's a very intensely competitive space. Um, and the, the argument is, look, it's a, it's a classic kickback scenario where you are looking to promote adoption in a highly competitive space and you are looking for ways to do that. And every once in a while, allegedly, that line gets crossed. From the, the perspective of the provider, um, it's, it's, you know, anytime anyone tells you, hey, we can optimize your revenue stream um, and make sure you're getting paid for everything you're doing, that obviously sounds appealing and appropriate. Uh, you know, the, the question is, are there situations where um, those functions uh, can be abused either um, by the end user or is there a problem systemically that that automatically does this, um, it, it, you know, it, it takes these actions that the government finds problematic. Um, I can provide an example of, of the kind of that contrast. Um, and again, full disclosure, I, I worked on, on this case briefly, but it, it, it was, you know, I, I left government before it was declined, but there's a declined now unsealed matter um, out of Tennessee, where you had a, um, um, a uh, long term uh, a home health company, where there were allegations that they were using EHR technology to upcode their OASIS forms. And the allegations indicated that, hey, you have the system that will let the end user know, hey, 
if you change this coding within your OASIS, um, it's going to result in a larger reimbursement for the period. And in that situation, theoretically, you have an end user that is consciously using the technology in a way that, that would the government argued be inappropriate. In the modernizing medicine case that, that's just been unsealed in Vermont, the allegations from the relator are that the system itself contained, alg contained algorithms within it um, that were automatically adding inappropriate modifiers to certain EM codes uh, that were resulting in an upcoding of the EM codes that were being submitted for payment. And that was being done, at least as I read the unsealed complaint, um, was being done without uh, the knowledge of the end user. And there's an allegation in there that if an end user figured out there was a problem and complained about it, um, that, that the, the uh, defendant uh, co uh, developer would change that coding for that end user, but it would the system would work the same for everyone else. Interesting. And so those are kind of those two different ways that you can look at a potential substantive fraud, EHR fraud situation. So tell me, you know, if, if I am a GC at an EHR developer or a chief compliance officer for a large provider network, what should I be thinking about when I'm either looking to implement or update my EHR system? Uh, you know, how can I ensure that, uh, you know, my folks on the developer side are, uh, you know, working uh, uh, in, in, in tandem and in lockstep with, with the rules that are in place? What are some of your thoughts on that? It's a fascinating question because this is still a relatively new area and, and very few of these cases have gone into litigation. Right. I mean, most of what we've talked about, you know, so far have been have been settlements and resolutions. I think the concerns obviously are different if you're on the end user side versus uh, the, the developer side. If you're on the developer side, I think you need to be conscious of, of the fact that this is an active space, that it's a hot space. It's been labeled a priority by DOJ in the last couple of years, especially that the District of Vermont is, is doing some some really impressive and consistent work on this. And I think you have to, you know, number one, watch out for those kickback issues, right? Um, you've got a sales force out there that is competitive. It's, it's in a competitive market. You've got people who are trying to, to make sales and you want to make sure they've been properly trained, um, you know, for kickback concerns and that you, you have a hold over, over your sales force that is marketing these systems. Uh, I think you also want to be obviously aware of the functions of your own system, not just to make sure that they're compliant with, with the certification requirements, but also to be aware of anything that could be misused or misconstrued um, down the line by an end user or by the government or a whistleblower. And to the extent that you have those, you know, again, revenue optimization is good. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with revenue optimization. There's nothing wrong with getting paid for what you do. But you do need to consider, are there certain safeguards we need to put in place? Are there certain you know, disclosures uh, that we need to make to our end users or warnings we need to give to our end users about proper use of these things? For the end user, uh, I think it's simply be aware of how your system functions. Um, if, if you, you, know, don't you don't necessarily want to trust everything it does without checking it. And if you see a problem, raise the concern because ultimately... An end user is the one usually submitting these claims. And so you are potentially going to be on the hook whether you knew what you were doing or not. Chris Sabus, wise words. Really appreciate you joining us today. This has been really excellent and a great breakdown of some of the key issues facing EHR uh, currently and, and, and the fraud theories that we're, we're seeing. Any final words for our listeners today? 
Uh, I just, Matt, I really appreciate y'all having me. It's, it's, I think, a very interesting area that is going to get developed a lot in, in litigation over the next, uh, next uh, few years. And uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to come back and, and talk to y'all again after the government files its complaint in modernizing medicine. I think it'll be really interesting to see where they focus. Looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks also to our listeners and to AHLA's members. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel, and please join us for another edition of the AHLA Fraud and Abuse podcast next month. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.